Thank you, choir. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable to you, our Lord and our Redeemer. Amen. As some of you know, I used to be a teacher before I came into ministry. I taught secondary and sixth form children, religious education. And in my first year teaching, I had a year 10 tutor group. That's 14 and 15 year olds. And on my first day of being a proper, actual, responsible teacher in charge of children, the first thing that I had to do was to gather, or perhaps wrangle might be a better word, uh, my tutor group together into a straight line on the netball court. That might not sound like too big a task. However, the whole of year 10 was on this netball court, and I taught at a very large school, so that was over 300 teenagers. And so you can just picture the scene. All these teenagers on the netball court, milling around, they've been on their summer holidays, and so they're catching up with news, they're talking about what they've done, they're sort of generally milling around. And out of these over 300 teenagers, I have to find 30 of them and get them to line up and to stop talking. And I didn't know who any of these children were, and they didn't know who I was. It took a little while, but we got there, we stood in a straight line. And I loved teaching. And the thing that I loved most about teaching was being a form tutor. These 30 students that it took me a little while to get to stand into a straight line, in the end, became one of my most joyous things about teaching. There was one student in my tutor group, let's call him Fred for the sake of argument, uh, who, well, he didn't like school very much. And Fred got a lot of detentions. And when I asked him what he'd done to get these detentions, more often than not, it would be a shrug of the shoulders and a sigh. And the teachers mostly would simply write on their form, disruptive behavior. The problem was that Fred was a likable character. And one of his teachers once described his influence in a classroom as being like dropping a pebble in a pond. And the ripples just flowed out from Fred, wherever he was in the room. Fred was disruptive. Truth be told, I quite liked Fred. And our readings this morning, it seemed to me, are all about disruption. Disruption of normality, of relationships, of life. The first disruption is an obvious one. Jesus disrupts the lives of the disciples. There they are, minding their own business, going about their day, making a living, and along comes Jesus. And their lives are never the same again. Many of us are familiar with this story. We've heard it many times. And I wonder if we lose sight of just how disruptive that event was. These were just ordinary men. Perhaps they had heard Jesus preaching. I'd like to think they had, but we don't know. And whether or not they had, Jesus speaks just a few words personally to them. And they leave behind their way of making a living, their security, their families. 
they are changed. Simon Peter and Andrew left behind their nets, and James and John left behind their boat and their father. In order to respond to the call of Jesus, they had to leave things behind. Not bad things, but being formed into who God was calling them to be, they had to change. And that's true for all of us. It's a change in our identity. And even though that change is good, it's hard to leave parts of ourselves behind. And so I wonder this morning, what are your nets? What are the things that you have had to let go of? And what is God calling you to still leave behind in order to be who he's calling you to be? And the response that the disciples show that this call of God is urgent. It shows the authority of Jesus. Peter and Andrew respond at once, and James and John immediately leave their boat and their father. We, however, are not always so quick to respond to God's call, are we? So often we say, not yet, I'm, I'm not quite ready. Or just give me another sign, God, and then I'll follow. Or I just don't think I can. We are good at making excuses. And we're in good company, of course, because Jeremiah was only a boy. And Moses couldn't speak. And Jonah had to be swallowed by a big fish to be able to follow God's call. And I, yes, even I, made excuses and hesitated to respond to God's call. You can't mean me, I argued. What have I got to say? Just let me sort my life out a bit, and then I'll follow you, God. But in the end, of course, it was God's will and not mine. Not everyone makes excuses, of course. Others are more obedient, more like those first disciples. But however long it takes us to respond, we can all be sure that God's call on our lives is persistent. And that God calls each of us all of us. And we all have the same primary calling, to be disciples, to follow Jesus. How we live that out is different for each of us, but we are all called by Jesus to come and follow him, to join in with his ministry in the world. From the beginning, Jesus's ministry was collaborative. We are called to join Jesus and each other in sharing the good news together. This calling of the first disciples happens right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And Matthew gives his readers two important pieces of contextual information, clues that he gives them about who this Jesus is. There's a quote from Isaiah to show that Jesus fulfills prophetic scripture. And we'll return to that shortly. But Matthew also tells us that as well as fulfilling prophecy in the Hebrew Bible, Jesus was also continuing the message of John the Baptist, keen to show that John was indeed preparing the way for Jesus, that this is the Lord, the one that will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire, as John had said. 
And Matthew has Jesus repeating the exact words that John had said earlier. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. There has been some debate among scholars about the use of the word kingdom. I wonder what words come into your mind when you hear that word. Now, I know that we don't normally do this, but I'm going to ask you to bear with me and just speak to the person next to you only for a minute, I promise. Um, and just tell them what word comes into your mind when you hear kingdom, what phrases appear to you. Now, if you really don't want to speak to the person next to you, that's fine, just sit where you are and just think to yourself. But what word comes to mind when you hear kingdom? Go. Nation. Telling them that. Okay, I'm gonna. I think when you do these things, it's always better to stop before people go quiet, because that means they've not gone on to talking about what they're having for lunch. So, I'm sure you had all sorts of ideas about what kingdom might mean. Uh, back up here on the stage, we had rule, we had basilica, I'll let you guess who that was from, but all sorts of different words. Now, in this week, I did a very scientific experiment, and I asked people on Facebook what words came into their minds when they heard the word kingdom. So, hopefully, we'll have a picture on the screen, here we are, with some of those words that people came up with. I wonder if uh, you recognize any of those words from your conversations. Come, place, animal, kingdom, something like that. Responsibility, location, formal, all sorts of different ideas that people had and that came into people's minds when they heard or saw the word kingdom. It's interesting, isn't it? All sorts of different connotations. And as I know who responded with which words, and I know those people well, I know that some of those words were only said by some of my Christian friends. You can probably guess, you can probably guess which ones they were. God, Christ, come, here and now, heavenly, equality. Those are very Christian words, aren't they, when we're talking about kingdom. And I think we can reconcile, we can bring together those ideas with God's kingdom and the heavenly kingdom. Others of those responses, though, I think are more challenging to the idea of God's kingdom. Somebody said it was a physical place with boundaries. Somebody else talked about fairy tales and castles. There was talk of male domination and patriarchy. And the point that was made by some of these scholars that were questioning the use of kingdom is that kingdom normally relates to a geographical area, whereas Jesus is referring to a new way of being, that perhaps reign might be a more appropriate way of expressing that God's overseeing is to do with changing hearts and minds. God reigns over the world than to do with boundaries and enforcing rules. And whatever word you want to use, whether or not actually you find kingdom really helpful, or perhaps that's been a slightly more helpful way of you thinking about the reign of God, I want to argue that the kingdom of God, the reign of God, 
is disruptive. But it's not disruptive to draw lines so that some are included and some are excluded, but rather it disrupts our earthly understandings of what is important and how we should live. And I guess the question then is, how do we participate in this kingdom, in this reign of God? Well, we're given the answer in scripture. Repent. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So we repent, we find a new perspective. We turn from our old ways of seeing and doing. We change our thinking and our acting and we act anew. We align our vision with God's. We do as Jesus did. We teach, we proclaim, we heal. And most of all, we love. Finally, this morning, I want to just spend a few moments with that quote from Isaiah and with that passage that we heard from Isaiah. And for Matthew, it was really important to include this passage so that his readers would immediately make the connection with this Jesus and the promised Messiah. They would have made that connection immediately. And I hope that you did too, having heard it from Isaiah and then heard that Matthew passage, you would have heard that those words were the same. And it's a really well-known passage too, isn't it? We heard it just this Christmas being read. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. That phrase, deep darkness, is so expressive. I can almost hear the author saying, no, no, seriously, it's really dark, like dark, dark. And of course, it was. For Zebulun and Naphtali were in the northern kingdom, and because of how close they were to the border, they were constantly under attack and dominated by other foreign states, by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, and then later the Romans. And Isaiah is writing from the southern kingdom. God's light, he's saying, will reach even up there, even up where they're constantly in trouble. There is no limit to God's power. His light will be upon them. The yoke of their oppressor will break, and they will know joy, even them up there. As Gordon reminded us in our prayers earlier, Tomorrow is Holocaust Memorial Day, and it takes place every year on the 27th of January. And it's a time when we can remember the millions of people murdered during the Holocaust under Nazi persecution and in the genocides which have followed. Deep darkness isn't expressive enough to encompass the atrocities that happened, the horrific things that human beings have done to each other, I've been privileged to hear survivors of the concentration camp speak on several occasions. And one thing that I have been struck by again and again is their determination to live in the light, to shine a light on what happened to them and their families and friends, to name the darkness and to help others learn so that it won't be repeated. And that's the power of light. It lights up everything, even the darkest corners that we might rather not see 
the people perhaps that we find difficult. The deep darkness of what humanity can and has done to each other. And the light has the power to disrupt the darkness. But a question is, do we really want to live in the light? Because if we do, then we can't ignore the things that are illuminated by it. Those things that require us to respond, to step out and challenge the behaviours and the darkness of this world. And I can't possibly do justice this morning to the experiences of those who have lived through genocide. But it is important that we take a moment to remember, to grieve and to commit ourselves as those who are called to live in the light to prevent it from happening again. Jesus calls us not only to live in the light, but also to be the light in the world, to brighten the lives of those around us with his love. So today I encourage you to be like Fred. Be disruptive, send out ripples, shine in dark places, live in the presence of the reign of God, the kingdom of heaven, and most of all, Respond to the call of Jesus to follow him. And so to finish some words from our final hymn that we're about to sing. Seeing life from your perspective makes your challenge plain. As your heart is grieving over those who live in pain, teach us how, by your compassion, you may fashion hope again. And so we stand to sing, Lord, you call us to your service, each in our own way. <laughs>